This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Kristen, Hazel Daniel, Heather and Lauren, Kristen Inman, and Chris Keist. Thank you all so, so much for donating. For those of you who don't know, the names that I just read are all new patrons on Patreon.com, which is this awesome site that you can go on and support creators that you like and the work that they make. So if the show works for you, maybe consider going to patreon.com and donating a dollar, two dollars, five dollars a month. At five dollars a month, you get access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send you poetry readings twice a month just for donating. So if the show has maybe helped you get a better night's sleep, consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio thank you and as always the music that you're hearing is by my good friend james lipkowski and the cover art for sleepy is done by gracie canaan so as i said in the last episode 
There's something about this weather that makes me want to read stories of adventure and, I guess, rebellion and going places that you never really thought you'd be, which is why I read The Count of Monte Cristo last week. And it was such a joy to read that I figured it'd be appropriate if we go to the library and get another book by Alexandre Dumas, a book called The Three Musketeers. I will admit, I don't really remember how this story goes, and I don't um, think I've ever read even part of the actual book, probably just seen the movie. The cover of this uh, copy that I have in front of me, <laughs> it's thick, it's a longer book, and um, right on the front there are four men with swords. It says, superheroes of the sword, they fought for honor for glory and for girls and there are four of them which makes me think I really don't know this story at all <laughs> why are there four when it is the three musketeers maybe we'll find out okay that's enough of me Gavin right now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it Get real comfortable in your bed. Feel yourself melt into your sheets. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. On the first Monday of the month of April 1626, the market town of Mayon, in which the author of The Romance of the Rose was born, appeared to be in as perfect a state of revolution as if the Huguenots had just made a second Rochelle of it. Many citizens seeing the women flying towards the Grand Street, leaving their children crying at the open doors, hastened to don the cuirass and supporting their somewhat uncertain courage with a musket or a partisan, directed their steps towards the holstery of the Jolly Miller, before which was gathered, increasing every minute, a compact group, vociferous and full of curiosity. In those times, panics were common, and few days passed without some city or other in registering in its archives an event of this kind. There were nobles who made war against each other. There was the king who made war against the cardinal. There was Spain which made war against the king. Then, in addition to these concealed or public, secret or open wars, there were robbers, mendicants, Huguenots, wolves, and scoundrels who made war upon everybody. The citizens always took up arms readily against thieves, wolves, or scoundrels, often against nobles or Huguenots, sometimes against the king, but never against the cardinal or Spain. It resulted then from this habit 
that on the said first Monday of the month of April 1626, the citizens, on hearing the clamor, and seeing neither the red and yellow standard, nor the livery of the Duke de Richelieu, rushed towards the hostel of the Jolly Miller. When arrived there, the cause of this hubbub was apparent to all. A young man, we can sketch his portrait at a dash. Imagine to yourself a Don Quixote of eighteen. A Don Quixote without his corselet, without his coat of mail, without his quizzes. A Don Quixote clothed in a woolen doublet, the blue collar of which had faded into a nameless shade between less of wine and a heavenly azure. A face long and brown, high cheekbones, a sign of sagacity, the maxillary muscles enormously developed, an infallible sign by which a Gascon may always be detected, even without his cap. And our young man wore a cap set off with a sort of feather, the eye open and intelligent, the nose hooked but finely chiseled. Too big for a youth, too small for a grown man. An experienced eye might have taken him for a farmer's son upon a journey, had it not been for the long sword, which, dangling from a leathern baldric, hit against the calves of its owner as he walked, and against the rough side of his steed when he was on horseback. For our young man had a steed which was the observed of all observers. It was a barren pony, from twelve to fourteen years old, yellow in his hide, without hair in his tail, but without wingles on his legs, which, though going with his head lower than his knees, rendering a martingale quite unnecessary, contrived nevertheless to perform his eight leagues a day. Unfortunately, the qualities of this horse were so well concealed under his strange colored hide and his unaccountable gait that at a time when everybody was a connoisseur in horse flesh, the appearance of the aforesaid pony at Mayong, which place he had entered about a quarter of an hour before by the gate of Bugency, produced an unfavorable feeling which extended to his rider. And this feeling had been the more painfully perceived by the young D'Artagnan. For so was the Don Quixote of this second Rosinante named from his not being able to conceal himself the ridiculous appearance that such a steed gave him, good horseman as he was. He had sighed deeply. Therefore, when accepting the gift of the pony from D'Artagnan the Elder, he was not ignorant that such a beast was worth at least twenty livres, and the words which accompanied the present were above all price. My son, said the old Gascon gentleman, in that pure, barren patois of which Henry the Fourth could never rid himself, my son, this horse was born in the house of your father about thirteen years ago, and has remained in it ever since, which ought to make you love it. Never sell it, allow it to die tranquilly and honorably of old age, 
if you make a campaign with it, take as much care of it as you would an old servant. At court, provided you ever have the honor to go there, continued D'Artagnan the Elder, an honor to which, remember, your ancient nobility gives you right to stand worthily your name of gentleman, which has been worthily borne by your ancestors for five hundred years, both for your own sake and the sake of those who belong to you. By the latter, I mean your relatives and friends. Endure nothing from anyone except Monsieur the Cardinal and the King. It is by his courage, please to observe, by his courage alone, that a gentleman can make his way nowadays. Whoever hesitates for a second perhaps allows the bait to become which during the exact second fortune held out to him. You are young. You ought to be brave for two reasons. The first is that you are a Gascon, and the second is that you are my son. Never fear quarrels, but seek adventures. I have taught you how to handle a sword. You have thews of iron, a wrist of steel. Fight on all occasions. Fight the more for duels being forbidden, since, consequently, there is twice as much courage in fighting. I have nothing to give you, my son, but fifteen crowns, my horse, and the counsels you have just heard. Your mother will add them to a recipe for a certain balsam which she had from a bohemian and which has the miraculous virtue of curing all wounds that do not reach the heart. Take advantage of all and live happily and long. I have but one word to add and that is to propose an example to you, not mine, for I myself have never appeared at court and have only taken part in religious wars as a volunteer. I speak of Monsieur de Treveau, who was formerly my neighbor, and who had the honor as a child to be the playfellow of our king, Louis the Eighth, whom God preserve. Sometimes their play degenerated into battles, and in these battles the king was not always the stronger. The blows which he received increased greatly his esteem and friendship for Monsieur de Treveau. Afterwards, de Treville fought with others. In his first journey to Paris five times, from the death of the late king to the young one came of age, without reckoning wars and sieges seven times. And from that day up to the present day, a hundred times perhaps. So that in spite of edicts, ordinances, and decrees, there he is, captain of the musketeers, that is to say, chief of a legion of Caesars, whom the king holds in great esteem, and whom the cardinal dreads. He who dreads nothing, as it is said. Still further, Monsieur de Treville gains 10,000 crowns a year. He is therefore a great noble. He began as you begin. Go to him with this letter and make him your model in order that you may do as he has done. Upon which D'Artagnan the elder girded his own sword round his son, 
kissed him tenderly on both cheeks and gave him his benediction. On leaving the paternal chamber, the young man found his mother, who was waiting for him with the famous recipe of which the counsels we have just repeated would necessitate frequent employment. The adieu were on his side longer and more tender than they had been on the other. Not that D'Artagnan did not love his son, who was his only offspring, but D'Artagnan was a man, and he would have considered it unworthy of a man to give way to his feelings, whereas Madame D'Artagnan was a woman, and still more, a mother. She wept abundantly, and let us speak of it to the praise of Monsieur d'Artagnan the Younger, notwithstanding the efforts he made to remain firm as a future musketeer ought. Nature prevailed, and he shed many tears, of which he succeeded with great difficulty in concealing the half. The same day the young man set forward on his journey, furnished with the three paternal gifts, which consisted, as we have said, of fifteen crowns, the horse, and the letter from Monsieur de Trevel, the counsels being thrown into the bargain. With such a vaud mecum, D'Artagnan was morally and physically an exact copy of the hero of Cervantes to whom we so happily compared him when our duty of the historian placed us under the necessity of sketching his portrait. Don Quixote took windmills for giants and sheep for armies. D'Artagnan took every smile for an insult and every look as a provocation. Once it resulted from Tarbes to Mayon, his fist was constantly doubled or his hand on the hilt of his sword and yet the fist did not descend upon any jaw, nor did the sword issue from its scabbard. It was not the sight of this wretched pony that did not excite numerous smiles on countenances of passers-by, but as against the side of the pony rattled a sword of respectable length, and as over this sword gleamed an eye rather ferocious than haughty, these passers-by repressed their hilarity, or... If hilarity prevailed over prudence, they endeavored to laugh only on one side, like the masks of the ancients. D'Artagnan, then, remained majestic and intact in his susceptibility till he came to this unlucky city of Mayon. But there, as he was alighting from his horse at the gate of the Jolly Miller, without anyone host, waiter, or hostler, coming to hold his stirrup or take his horse, D'Artagnan spied, through an open window on the ground floor, a gentleman, well-made and of good carriage, although of a rather stern countenance, talking with two persons who appeared to listen to him with respect. D'Artagnan fancied quite naturally according to his custom, that he must be the object of their conversation, and listen. This time D'Artagnan was only in part mistaken. He himself was not in question, but his horse was. 
The gentleman appeared to be enumerating all his qualities to his auditors. And, as I have said, the auditors seeming to have great defense for the narrator, they every moment burst into fits of laughter. Now, as a half-smile was sufficient to awaken the irascibility of the young man, the effect produced upon him by this vociferous mirth may be easily imagined. Nevertheless, D'Artagnan was desirous of examining the appearance of this impertinent personage who ridiculed him. He fixed his haughty eye upon the stranger and perceived a man of from forty to forty-five years of age, with black and piercing eyes, pale complexion, a strongly marked nose, and a black and well-shaped mustache. He was dressed in a doublet and hose of violet color, with augulets of the same, without any other ornaments than the customary slashes through which the shirt appeared. This doublet and hose, though new, were creased, like traveling clothes for a long time packed in a portmanteau. D'Artagnan made all these remarks with the rapidity of a most minute observer, and doubtless from an instinctive feeling that this unknown was destined to have great influence over his future life. Now, as at the moment in which D'Artagnan fixed his eyes upon the gentleman in the violet doublet, the gentleman made one of his most knowing and profound remarks respecting the Bernese pony. His two auditors laughed even louder than before, and he himself, though contrary to his custom, allowed a pale smile, if I may be allowed to use such an expression, to stray over his countenance. This time, there could be no doubt, D'Artagnan was really insulted. Full, then of his conviction, he pulled his cap down over his eyes and endeavoring to copy some of the court airs he had picked up in Gascony among young traveling nobles. He advanced with one hand on the hilt of his sword and the other resting on his hip. Unfortunately, as he advanced, his anger increased at every step, and instead of the proper and lofty speech that he had prepared as a prelude to this challenge, he found nothing at the tip of his tongue but a gross personality, which he accompanied with a furious gesture. I say, sir, you, sir, who are hiding yourself behind that shutter. Yes, you, sir. Tell me what you are laughing at, and we will laugh together. The gentleman raised his eyes slowly from the nag to his cavalier as if he required some time to ascertain whether it could be to him that such strange reproaches were addressed. Then, when he could not possibly entertain any doubt of the matter, his eyebrows slightly bent, and with an accent of irony and insolence impossible to be described, he replied to D'Artagnan, I was not speaking to you, sir. But I am speaking to you replied the young man, additionally exasperated with this mixture of insolence and good manners, of politeness and scorn. The unknown looked at him again with a slight smile, and retiring from the window, came out of the hostelry with a slow step, 
and place himself before the horse within two places of D'Artagnan. His quiet manner and ironical expression of his countenance redoubled the mirth of the persons with whom he had been talking and who still remained at the window. D'Artagnan, seeing him approach, drew his sword a foot out of his scabbard. This horse is decidedly, or rather has been in his youth, a buttercup, resumed the unknown, continuing the remarks he had begun and addressing himself to the auditors at the window, without paying the least attention to the exasperation of D'Artagnan, who, however, placed himself between him and them. It is a color very well known in botany, but till the present time very rare among horses. There are people who laugh at the horse that would not dare to laugh at the master, cried the young emulator of the furious Travel. I do not often laugh, sir, replied the unknown, as you may perceive by the expression of my countenance. But nevertheless, I retain the privilege of laughing when I please. And I, cried D'Artagnan, will allow no man to laugh when it displeases me. Indeed, sir, continued the unknown, more calm than ever. Well, that is perfectly right. And turning on his heel, was about to re-enter the hostelry by the front gate, beneath which D'Artagnan on arriving had observed a saddled horse. But D'Artagnan was not of a character to allow a man to escape him, thus, who had the insolence to ridicule him. He drew his sword entirely from his scabbard and followed him, crying, Turn, turn, Master Joker, lest I strike you behind. Strike me, said the other, turning on his heels and surveying the young man with as much astonishment as contempt. Why, my good fellow, you must be mad. Then in a suppressed tone, as if speaking to himself, This is annoying, continued he. What a godsend this would be for his majesty, who is seeking everywhere for brave fellows to recruit his musketeers. He had scarcely finished when D'Artagnan made such a furious lunge at him that if he had not sprung nimbly backwards, it is probable he would have jested for the last time. The unknown, then perceiving that the matter went beyond raillery, drew his sword, saluted his adversary, and seriously placed himself on guard. But at the same moment, his two auditors, accompanied by the host, fell upon D'Artagnan with sticks, shovels, and tongs. This caused so rapid and complete a diversion from the attack that D'Artagnan's adversary, while the latter turned round to face this shower of blows, sheathed his sword with the same precision, and instead of an actor, which he had nearly been, became a spectator of the fight, a part in which he acquitted himself with his usual impassibility muttering, nevertheless, a plague upon these Gascons. Replace him on his orange horse and let him be gone. Not before I have killed you, Paltroon, cried D'Artagnan, making the best face possible and never retreating one step 
for his three assailants, who continue to shower blows upon him. Another Gasconade, murmured the gentleman. By my honor, these Gascons are incorrigible. Keep up the dance then, since we will have it so. When he is tired, he will perhaps tell us that he has enough of it. But the unknown knew, not the headstrong personage he had to do with. D'Artagnan was not the man ever to cry for quarter. The fight was therefore prolonged for some seconds. But at length, D'Artagnan dropped his sword, which was broken in pieces by the blow of the stick. Another blow fell upon his forehead at the same moment and brought him to the ground, covered with blood and almost fainting. It was at this moment that people came flocking to the scene of action from all sides. The host, fearful of consequences, with the help of his servants, carried the wounded man into the kitchen, where some trifling attentions were bestowed upon him. As to the gentleman, he resumed his place at the window and surveyed the crowd with a certain impatience, evidently annoyed by their remaining undispersed. Well, how is it with this madman? exclaimed he, turning round as the noise of the door announced the entrance of the host, who came to inquire if he was unhurt. Your Excellency is safe and sound, asked the host. Oh yes, perfectly safe and sound, my good host, and I wish to know what has become of our young man. He is better, said the host. He fainted quite away. Indeed, said the gentleman. But before he fainted, he collected all his strength to challenge you, to defy you while challenging you. Why, this fellow must be the devil in person, cried the unknown. Oh, no, Your Excellency, he is not the devil, replied the host, with a grin of contempt, for during his fainting we rummaged his valise and found nothing but a clean shirt and twelve crowns, which, however, did not prevent his saying, and as he was fainting, that if such a thing had happened in Paris, he should have instantly repented of it. Well, here, he would only have cause to repent of it at a later period. Then, said the unknown coolly, he must be some prince in disguise. I have told you this, good sir, resumed the host, in order that you may be on your guard. Did he name no one in his passion? Yes, he struck his pocket and said, We shall see what Monsieur de Trevelle will think of this insult offered to his protege. Monsieur de Trevelle said the unknown, becoming attentive. He put his hand on his pocket while pronouncing the name of Monsieur de Trevelle. Now, my dear host, while your young man was insensible, you did not fail, I am quite sure, to ascertain what the pocket contained. What was there in it? A letter addressed to Monsieur de Trevelle, captain of the musketeers. Indeed, exactly as I have the honor to tell your excellency. The host, who was not endowed with great perspicacity, did not observe the expression with which his words had given the physiognomy of the unknown, 
The latter rose from the front of the window upon the sill of which he had learned with his elbow and knitted his brows like a man disquieted. The devil, murmured he, between his teeth, can Travel have set this Gaskin upon me? He is very young, but a sword thrust is a sword thrust, whatever be the age of him who gives it, and a youth is less to be suspected than an older man. And the unknown fell into a reverie which lasted some minutes. A weak obstacle is sometimes sufficient to overthrow a great design. Host, said he, could you not contrive to get rid of this frantic boy for me? In conscience I cannot count. And yet, added he, with a coldly menacing expression, and yet he annoys me. Where is he? In my wife's chamber, on the first flight, where they are dressing his wounds. His things in his bag are with him. Has he taken off his doublet? On the contrary, everything is in the kitchen. But if he annoys you, this young fool, to be sure he does, he causes a disturbance in your hostelry, which respectable people cannot put up with. Go, make out my bill, and notify my servant. What, monsieur, will you leave us so soon? You know that very well. As I gave the order to saddle my horse, have they not obeyed me? It is done. As your excellency may have observed, your horse is in the great gateway, ready saddled for your departure. That is well. Do as I have directed you then. What a devil, said the host to himself. Can he be afraid of this boy? But an imperious glance from the unknown stopped him short. He bowed humbly and retired. It is not necessary for milady to be seen by this fellow, continued the stranger. She will soon pass. She is already late. I'd better get on horseback and go and meet her. I should like, however, to know what this letter addressed to Travel contains. And the unknown, muttering to himself, directed his steps towards the kitchen. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.